The Trumpet Daily program begins right now. Today's world news, what it means, where it's taking us. I bring you the one and only possible message of world peace. This is a message of hope, tremendous hope. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again. The Trumpet Daily program begins right now. In two years, I reduced the debt $1.7 billion. $1.7 billion. The MAGA Republicans are a different breed of cat. No, they're not bad or good. They're just very, they're very different. Yeah. Studies show further that the more, the more likely you are to pass or have serious injury, the further you are from access to a hospital. By the way, you docs are good, but if there's any angels in heaven, they're all nurses, male and female. You know why? You guys let us, you guys make us, allow us to live. Nurses make you want to live. And I had a nurse named Pearl Nelson, military. She'd come in and do things that I don't think you learn in medical school, nursing school. She'd whisper in my ear. I didn't, couldn't understand them. She'd whisper, she'd lean down. She'd actually breathe on me to make sure that I was, that there was a connection, a human connection. She even went home and brought back her pillow from her own bed because she didn't knew the one I had, the one comfortable. But I'm not joking. There's your uh, your fake president uh, yesterday uh, doing what Joe Biden does best. He uh, he also made a statement about uh, how he's a white guy, but he's not dumb. So pretty much insult it brought race, of course, into it as uh, as the dear leader certainly did during his first two terms. Barack Obama. Lots to get to on today's show. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. And I did not realize how bright this sweater was until I got into the studio. So what a contrast! It's uh, it's Vladimir Zelensky Day. Let's call it that. Actually, it's a it's a travel day. We're heading off to our uh, annual college campout. Just about an hour down the road, so it's uh, it's close by. We've been moving it around the last few years to some uh, some sites in Oklahoma, so we're excited to see uh, see this new site. We've never been to this uh, this particular campout until this year, so we're looking forward to that. Several of us leaving, as I say, uh, right after the show today. So you'll have a couple of subs for tomorrow and for Friday's program as well. And then I'll be back behind the mic on, uh, on Monday's show. So this statement, I should have brought that clip as well. Joe Biden said, saying, I, you know, I may be white, but I'm not dumb. I mean, just think about that for a second. This is, I mean, everything about this movement, this communist infiltration, it's meant to disrupt, to divide, to frame everything, in terms of race, as I say, this is exactly, he's a disciple of Barack Obama. There's this book called Grace. It's written by Barack Obama's chief speechwriter, a guy named Cody Keegan. Uh, and he talks about the events leading up to, I guess, this, this, this speech that Obama gave in 2015 at the 50-year anniversary of uh, Selma. And then the book also talks about how Barack Obama handled the uh, that that tragic shooting in Charleston. It's pretty much a swooning tribute 
as you would uh, expect. And if you look at, uh, we've written before at the Trumpet website how that the communist infiltration, how that the communists really hijacked even the civil rights movement from back in the 1960s. But this book talks about how that Obama's messaging, it started with Trayvon Martin, which we talked about on Monday's show, and then it sort of reached its, its climax uh, following the tragedy in Charleston. And it says this, but to, uh, to be a speechwriter for Barack Obama was never easy. He never let a captive audience go to waste. And we saw this uh, again on Monday's show. Valerie Jarrett there admitting that, yeah, following Trayvon Martin, uh, we planted the question there in the, the media. And then Barack Obama was ready to insert himself and his thinking and his ideology into that incident. George Zimmerman, of course, shooting Trayvon Martin in self-defense, as was later proven in a court of law. It says here, I knew he'd demand something more than words for praising Selma as a consequential moment in America's history. It says, to meet his expectations demanded using Selma as a lens to examine and explain that history. See, this was so huge. I mean, this is... This is how we transform America. We've got to capitalize on this anniversary and this, this particular speech that quotes Obama. What greater form of patriotism is there, he continued looking at me, than the belief that America is unfinished, the notion that we're strong enough to be self-critical, to look upon our imperfections and to say that we can do better, right? He added two short paragraphs to the first page, the first consecrating Selma as a battlefield, just as important to America, uh, the America idea as any other, everything you see framed through race. This is what critical race theory is all about, basically. There are places, moments in America where the nation's destiny is decided. Many are sites of war, Concord and Lexington, Appomattox and Gettysburg. Selma is such a place. So it's right up there said the dear leader. Then he elevated the battle fought there as critical to America's destiny. It was not a clash of armies, but a clash of wills, a content to be determined, uh, to, to determine the meaning of America. So Obama basically boiled it down to a war of the wills. If you think about that Charleston shooting, my father gave a Key of David program following that, a powerful, one of, his best, <laughs> one of his best ever, as he talked about some of the congregants in that church that were willing to forgive. And he, he basically said, here's my father, God's servant, talking about you know, a, an actual solution that would bring peace and unity if everyone would abide by it. And yet you had on the other side, in the spirit of Antiochus, you had Barack Obama using that tragic incident, using that tragic shooting to stir up more division and strife in the United States of America. And you really do see Satan's fingerprints on all of this. All of this to this day. I mean, as I said on Monday's show, here Valerie Jarrett, she tweets out this 11-year anniversary, and basically they stick to the lies. They stick to the narrative. They stick to the agenda. They just keep going forward with it. And, of course, in, in so many ways, they're not even trying to 
conceal their true intentions anymore. Listen to this from Tucker Carlson last night. This is Candace Owens on Tucker's show, Clip 7. The Democrats used to be quiet about their corruption, right? Years ago, they were quiet about their corruption. Now they're corrupt openly and they're mocking you. And what they're really asking you is, and what are you going to do about it? So what? We knew Fetterman was mentally incapacitated and we still allowed him to make it all the way to the Senate. And what are you going to do about it? So what? We know that Joe Biden can't, can barely walk. We can see the early signs of dementia. And what are you going to do about it? It's a very fair question. I, I'd ask the same to everybody out there watching this program. What are you going to do about it? Why don't you start saying the truth and having the courage to say it boldly we're corrupt so what what are you gonna do what i mean we're we're not gonna be held responsible so what's the big deal they're just they're taking off the camouflage and revealing who they are all of this corruption tucker talked about that uh that wall street journal piece exposing basically the covid lie this is what he had to say clip eight so the whole COVID thing started about three years ago, and we're finally learning what a lot of people suspected from the beginning, which is that the experts either didn't know what they were talking about or they were lying. Now, it's kind of depressing to go through all those lies, but it's also necessary if you don't want that to happen again, and we definitely don't. That's, uh, that's from Tucker's show last night. The New York Post had a piece uh, on 10 myths told by the COVID experts. You want to talk about spreading disinformation or misinformation, these myths. This is number one. It says natural immunity offers little protection compared to vaccinated immunity. They told this lie. Natural, now we know natural immunity is basically your surest, your surest protection from the disease. Misinformation number two, masks prevent COVID transmission. We now know they didn't do any good at all. But they told us, I mean, the experts told us. Some of them said, put two or three masks on. Misinformation number three, school closures reduce COVID transmission. Got to shut down the schools to save our young people, to keep it from spreading. And now we're seeing all of the, the deadly side effects from that course of action. Went on for, for many, many months, over a year in some cases. Misinformation number four, myocarditis from the vaccine is less common than from the infection. I mean, it's just, uh, they, they said it's just normal. It's normal to have all of these, these heart irregularities. We now know different. Misinformation number five, young people benefit from a vaccine booster. Y young people were never even in danger. And now you see them dropping dead of heart attacks. Look at what we've done to ourselves. Misinformation uh, number six, vaccine mandates increase vaccination rates. Number seven, COVID originating from the Wuhan lab is a conspiracy theory. We now know, well, actually it did. All the experts, you see, they were wrong. Science falsely so-called, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Misinformation number eight, it was important to get the second vaccine dose three or four weeks after the first dose. So important. Get the double dose, get the booster, everything. I saw a tweet the other day, someone saying they had gotten six shots, the double dose, four boosters, and then guess what happened? They got the COVID. They got COVID after all that. Misinformation uh, number nine, Data on the bivalent vaccine is crystal clear. And then number 10, one in five people get long 
COVID. So all of these, all of these lies, all of this, this misinformation, I should say, so much being exposed, and yet who's held to account? You know, Fauci's out there saying, well, we're probably just never going to know whether it came from a lab or what, or an animal. We, we just won't know. I saw at least three, three uh, uh, links on Grabian this morning of individuals saying, we, we just won't be able to know for sure. Never mind what the FBI has concluded. Never mind what the Wall Street Journal revealed. We, we just probably, how convenient for these people to hide behind, you know, we just really don't know. So that's the, the new line, I guess. And, of course, they're ready. All of them are ready to take it and run with it. To, 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 to say exactly the same messaging. You know, we pointed this out on Monday's show, just how many headlines there were as soon as that, uh, that Hollywood actor trashed Pfizer. And then the, the headlines, we saw, I saw it uh, that night on a couple of the Fox shows, pointing out the same thing. All the headlines that said exactly the same thing about Woody Harrelson. They're like robots. Listen to Bill Maher. He... He has a comedy show, some say, uh, and he's commenting on how important it is to get writers and to sort of stay, you know, stay edgy. So get some new talent in there from time to time. Listen to what he says about just the resumes that he has to sift through to to get a new writer from time to time. Clip nine. But I get every year when we are looking for maybe we want new writers on our show. Uh, I love the writers I have, but you yeah. know what? I'm running a business here. Right. I'm sorry, it's it's brutal, but if I can find somebody better, that's what I'm doing. I always serve the show first. So every year I read these packets of proposed writers, and I read them this year as I do every year, and it's just stunning how uniform their their points of view are. And it always it hasn't always been that way. Exact. I don't remember, but I don't think it was ever quite this bad. It's the exact same point of view on every single issue. And it's very predictable. It's predictable. And it's not just for comedy writers. It's right across the board in the Uniparty. I mean, look at how they all just kind of nod along and say the exact same thing with, uh, with respect to Ukraine, for example. Just to take one example, the United States funding this entire effort, not just the war effort, but basically funding Ukraine as a, as a state, as a nation state. 90%. Only 10% or less coming from the rest of Europe. And here it's right there. It's, it's right there in Eastern Europe. And, and like I said, all of these leaders in Europe just laughing hysterically, no doubt, at the United States, emptying out its treasury, emptying out all of its military hardware, all of its stockpiles of weapons, everything. And the, Brit, the British, of course, are not far behind. This is what uh, Zelensky, by the way, had to say. I think the reporter asked him, you know, there's quite a few Americans that, that they don't really agree with how much the U.S. is supporting Ukraine. And he had some remarks about that. I played that for you yesterday. And then listen to what he says about America's children, America's military boys. This is clip two. The U.S. will have to send their sons and daughters exactly the same way as we are sending their sons and daughters to war, and they will have to fight. 
because it's uh, nature that we're talking about, and they will be dying, God forbid, because it's a horrible thing. Wow, he just drags NATO right into it. They're not in NATO, Ukraine isn't, but he's there saying, you know, hey, U.S. boys are going to have to come over and fight for us as well. I mean, you would think, given how much the United States is giving to this man, a man that, never mind what the media says, you know, the second coming of, uh, of uh, Winston Churchill, a man who has a lot of ties to corruption. Speaking of corruption, and just the fact that the, the camouflage is now off, you would think there'd be a little bit more humility. And instead, he's talking about American, you know, Marines coming over to fight for NATO. As I say, what, what, must, what must the rest in Europe, the leaders in Europe, be thinking at this time, or even Vladimir Putin, for that, for that matter, but like I say, the thinking is exactly the same right across the board in the Uniparty. It's so predictable, as Bill Maher says. This is Condoleezza Rice. She worked for the George W. Bush administration. And listen to what she had to say recently about Ukraine. Clip three. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, widely expected to run, said the U.S. cannot provide Ukraine an open-ended blank check. They reject your point of view in many ways by saying the U.S. needs to kind of pull back here. Well, I'm not going to put warts in the mouth of future presidential candidates. We'll see where they where they end up. But you I will. Ron DeSantis. Uh, fine. But I will. <laughs> but I will say this: it is really important that whoever runs for president of the United States understands the essence of this conflict. The fact that we are defending not just Ukrainian independence, but we're defending a rule, we are defending a rules-based system that says might doesn't make right. You can't just extinguish your neighbor. Uh, so I, I would say to those who are going to run for office, uh, be careful what you say. And I would just make one other point. Um, if the American people see a world in which Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have won this mm -hmm. engagement, this first volley, if you will, in the largest strategic picture. And they see that Ukrainian independence has been extinguished. And they know that the United States could have done something about it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to be a very good message for a future president to have to deliver. Mm -hmm. And I just say, just remember yep. dates, 1914, 1941, 2001. These conflicts always come home. Good spokesman for the Uniparty there. At least she mentioned Xi Jinping. Together with Putin, you'd like to see more of the talking heads make that connection. We've been making it on this show. But there she is. Look, if you're going to run for president, if you're a Republican, if you're the Republican nominee, you better sound like Joe Biden. You better sound like Chuck Schumer. You better say the same things as Nancy Pelosi with respect to Ukraine. I mean, look, we're all here to say exactly the same thing. And of course, as soon as you take a differing opinion, then you're a Russian agent. Then you're a Vladimir Putin stooge. You can't, you can't disagree with them. Look, Bill Maher is sifting through resumes trying to find some, some uniqueness, uh, some, someone with a differing opinion. He can't find one. They all think the same thing. They all say the same thing. That's why the comedy late at night is not very funny. You look at those comedy shows, they're all so left-wing in their ideology, and they're totally unfunny. Chris Ray, he uh, went to this interview with, uh, who is it on Fox, uh, Brett Baer, 
Uh, and there he is, and Bear, to his credit, does ask some, some pretty direct questions. But here again, it's, it's like Fauci now. Hey, look, listen, listen, uh, we may never know. Okay, and oh, oh, by the way, as far as Jan 6 and informants and such, uh, we can't really reveal our sources and methods. So they just hide, they, they, there's no accountability. Truth fails. Truth is cast to the ground. Here's Chris Ray talking about the informants, which everybody knows. There were dozens and dozens of them. Here, here he is talking about the informants involved in the January 6th protest, clip four. And the other Twitter question we get a lot is, did the FBI have undercover agents or paid informants or assets among the mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6th? Well, as I'm sure you can appreciate, Brett, I can't really appropriately talk about when, where, and how we use confidential informants. And Brett Baer went on to ask him, well, is this classified? I mean, we're two years on from this. But there's the director of the FBI saying, I'm sure you can appreciate that I can't answer that question. Two years on, people have been languishing in jail for taking selfies. Footage is now coming out of these flashbangs and, 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 and the police firing at the crowd. You would think he'd be concerned about that. You would, again, an ounce of humility if, if there's an ounce of humility, he says, you know, I have seen some disturbing footage. Uh, yes, there were some informants. I certainly hope they weren't inciting or provoking that, that riot. But he, he doesn't say anything. He just doesn't say a word. And he remains. He stays on heading up the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Wow. Here he is uh, again in this interview from yesterday, clip five. All right, so let's talk about by the book. Mark Houck, Pennsylvania pro-life activist, arrested at his home in front of his family for an alleged violation of the Freedom of Access of Clinics Act, alleged incident which he was protesting in front of an abortion clinic. He was recently acquitted of all charges at trial. The show of force for that arrest, that decision to use that force, was that by the book? Those decisions are made as they should be by the commanders on the ground in the field office who have the expertise about when to conduct operations safely and securely for the safety of everybody involved. And to my knowledge, those processes were all followed in this case. Yeah, I mean, historically, FBI protocol is that a defendant has, if he has no criminal history, is not believed to be violent or pose a threat to public safety, that he or she is permitted to self-surrender rather than subject um, dynamic execution of an arrest warrant. And here's what I'm talking about is the dual system. You know, there's that for a pro-life activist, but not that for a Black Lives Matter protester who maybe torches a federal building um, over the summer. So that disparity, that dichotomy, is what sticks in people's mind. I understand that people have their opinions. Uh, all I can tell you is that we have one standard, one standard, uh, which is irrespective of ideology, of politics. In this country, it doesn't matter what you're upset about or who you're upset with. You don't get to express that upset with violence. And so we are agnostic as the ideology and focus on the violence. There's Brett Baer pointing out the obvious double standard. This, I mean, they threw everything in the kitchen sink at this uh, pro-life activist. And then he's acquitted in court. They arrest him in front of his family and everything. And then he's acquitted later in court. But the BLM people, they're, they're let off scot-free. 
And, and so then the response after, again, this obvious double standard, the response coming from the FBI director is, hey, we have one standard. We just have, I understand people have opinions, but look, this is the FBI. I mean, we're above reproach. We haven't done anything wrong or, or according to bias, or we certainly don't have a political agenda. That's, that's, his, uh, that's his answer. <laughs> that's his response. And all, think of the evidence. Let's just come pouring in. They've been exposed. This agency's been exposed as manipulating social media, as pressuring social media on the Twitter files. Have Matt Taibbi and others have, have made this obvious to the whole world. Listen to how the FBI director responds to that. Clip six. Let's talk about the FBI and what you told Big Tech or some agents did about the authenticity and providence of Hunter Biden's laptop. What about that from an FBI perspective? The FBI does not, is not in the business of functioning as the truth police. Understood. So we don't tell social media companies to censor anything. Well, or the Twitter file suggests something different. I mean, there was an FBI request numerous times. Um, Taibbi puts it out, FBI San Francisco request to ban certain accounts. Uh, Twitter personnel in this case went on to look for reasons to suspend all four accounts that the FBI wanted to ban or, or suspend. Um, was, is it appropriate to flag social media accounts for, on Twitter or elsewhere due to politics or uh, government policies when it comes to COVID? Uh, is it appropriate in any way? You're saying it doesn't happen, but there's evidence that it had. We don't tell social media companies to ban accounts. But you suggest. Well, what we do is tell social media companies about information that we have about foreign disinformation campaigns by foreign actors, by foreign intelligence services. The Twitter files suggest something different. That, that's about as strong as a, a reporter can get with an FBI director. That's, that's about as close as you can get to saying, well, you're lying. You're, you're saying one thing, but the Twitter files expose your lies. And then there he is, snake oil salesman, saying, listen, we don't pressure anybody. We don't, we don't flag accounts. We're not telling Twitter or anyone else to censor these individuals. We're the FBI. What a, what a revealing interview that was. As I say, it shows a lot about, I mean, that's Fox News. It's a little more conservative than some platforms, I suppose. But you can only go so far. And, and you catch them in a lie, and you, you, you basically they'll just say, no, that's not a lie. Here's the truth. We've got one standard for everybody. We've got, and, we didn't, and we didn't pressure Twitter. So says Chris Ray. Given all that's been exposed... In just the last few months, you would hope for a slightly different tone and response, but, but not so. Not so. They continue on with their agenda. This is from the Wall Street Journal, this watchdog report on the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan almost two years ago. It says a government watchdog said an abrupt uncoordinated withdrawal from Afghanistan and years of problems with planning and oversight of U.S. assistance contributed to the collapse of the Western-backed government in Kabul and the Taliban takeover of the country soon after American forces departed. That's according to a report. 
released uh, just the other day. Again, the Wall Street Journal exposing this. It says, poor accountability on weapons and equipment provided to Afghanistan and a lack of systemic uh, planning were also important factors in the military collapse there, according to the report by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. It says the document, which was reported earlier by the Wall Street Journal, also calls out the Department of Defense for delaying answering official inquiries, missing deadlines, and providing incomplete answers to questions. So this was, I mean, this was a disaster from the beginning. And obviously the chaos that ensued with that abrupt departure, people trying to hang on to the wheel wells of, of jumbo jets, of all things, just to try to escape what they knew was coming, ruled by Taliban. The United States just handing it over to the Taliban. My father uh, wrote, this is from the trumpet a couple years ago, this isn't incompetence, this is treason. It's not incompetence, it's worse, much worse. He says, this has been the worst foreign policy disaster in the nation's history. This terrible defeat was a spectacle seen by the entire world, and they were watching intently. It says it will mar our history, perhaps for the rest of time. Many people say it proves Joe Biden's incompetence. He's speaking again of the Afghanistan withdrawal, but this catastrophe isn't the result of bungling and bad judgment. It's a deliberate, planned effort to destroy America. You see, it's all part of the fundamental transformation of America. Barack Obama's goal, his plan, he stated it overtly in 2008. And here we are into it. They had to do everything they could to get Trump out of the way so that this transformation could continue. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. If you'd like to email the show, you can reach us at td at We'll be right back. The Trumpet Daily. What has happened to the United States of America? The wealthiest, most powerful nation in human history is suddenly divided, weakened, radical. The evil in America has grown powerful. The good has grown weak. The honorable parts of American history are succumbing to a direct, targeted, sustained assault. Someone, something is dismantling America's history, purpose, and character. Fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Political dysfunction, social strife, economic peril, catastrophic moral failure, fires, attacks, riots, lies. The nation is being attacked from within by its own leaders. Powerful elites in government, journalism, academia, and beyond are intentionally, rapidly destroying what America is in order to make it into something else. There is a reason why your nation is crumbling before your eyes. There is a spirit and a specific perpetrator that is attempting to blot out America. Only America Under Attack reveals that perpetrator and the motive and spirit behind him. This newly expanded book shows you the reason why America has changed so dramatically, so suddenly. If you're confused and concerned about what is happening to America, request your free copy of America Under Attack by Gerald Flurry at thetrumpet.com.
The Trumpet Daily. Brad McDonald uh, recently gave a lecture here on, uh, on campus uh, referring to just how important it is to maintain a positive uh, mental outlook. This is uh, one of the seven laws of radiant health, and there's several scriptures uh, from the Proverbs and elsewhere that talk about the importance of just being positive, of just being filled with joy and hope. The Bible speaks a lot about this being joyous, even in the time of trial and test. And he mentioned, Mr. McDonald did, he mentioned the example of Winston Churchill, how that he lived, uh, I think he was 90 when he died back in 1965. And he wasn't necessarily known his entire life for being, you know, really strict with his diet or exercise. He was very active, however. He was very active and he also maintained a very positive outlook. There's, I'm, I know there's quite a few biographers that make a, a big deal out of the black dog that Churchill talked about from time to time. And I'm sure he had bouts with negativity. We all do. But for the most part, when you think about how he was just attacked relentlessly, even from his own countrymen, and, and that, he, that he kept coming back. I mean, that speaks to his outlook on life, his stick-to-itiveness, the comeback kid. I mean, he was always coming back, even, even when he reached an, an absolute low point politically. Everyone blamed him for the Dardanelles disaster back in 1915. You could say that that was maybe a career low for Churchill. And how did he respond to that? Well, he just went and joined the forces on the Western Front. He went and he was a man of action. He said, well, if I'm not going to serve in this position with the government, then I might as well go fight for my country. What an attitude, again. A willingness to put his country and uh, the needs of his country, even above his, his own needs and desires. It was in the summer of 1915, the Churchill family, they rented a, a farmhouse, um, and Churchill's sister-in-law suggested to Churchill, who was uh, 40, I think, maybe over 40 at the time, 40 years of age, but his sister-in-law suggested that he take up painting. So here he is, a middle-aged man, you know, well past his prime, as far as Don Lemon is concerned, a middle-aged man taking up painting, and uh, he did it. I mean, he poured his heart into it from that point forward. He describes, it's a brilliant essay written back in 1921, painting as a pastime. I mean, he, he painted, and then he wrote about painting. He loved it. He loved it. I think Churchill's produced something like 520 or 30 paintings. Here's what he said. Having, having bought the colors an easel and a canvas. The next step was to begin, but what a step to take, he said. The palette gleamed with beads of color, fair and white rose, the canvas. The empty brush hung poised, heavy with destiny, irresolute in the air. My hand seemed uh, arrested by a silent veto. But after all, the sky on this occasion was unquestionably blue and uh, pale blue at that. It says there could be no doubt that blue paint mixed with white should be put on the top part of the canvas. It says one really does not need to have an artist's training to see that. It is a starting point, open to all. So, he says, very gingerly, 
I mixed a little blue paint on the palette with a very small brush and then with infinite precaution made a mark about as big as a bean upon the affronted snow white shield. It says it was a challenge, a deliberate challenge, but so subdued, so halting, indeed so cataleptic that it deserved no response. It says, at that moment, the loud approaching sound of a motor car was heard in the drive. From, the, from this chariot, there stepped swiftly and lightly, none other than the gifted wife of Sir John Lavery. He's, he's a painter from Scotland. Painting! But what are you hesitating about, she said. Let me have a brush, the big one. <laughs> Churchill, his first canvas, he's got all the colors, he's got the brushes, he takes the tiniest brush of all, he puts a little dot. I mean, the canvas intimidated him. And then here comes the wife of a painter, and she says, Oh, you're painting! Let me have at it! Give me the big brush! It says, Splash into the turpentine, wallop into the blue and the white. Frantic flourish on the palette, clean no longer, and then several large, fierce strokes and slashes of blue on the absolute, absolutely cowering canvas. It says, Anyone could see that it could not hit back. No evil fate avenged the jaunty violence. The canvas grinned in helplessness before me. The spell was broken. The sickly inhibitions rolled away. He says, I seized the largest brush and fell upon my victim with berserk fury. I have never felt any awe of a canvas since. <laughs> so Churchill from this incident, he, he became a big believer in painting with large, powerful, bold strokes, Go, just going all in. Why, why be intimidated by the white canvas? Colossians 3 and verse 23, very similar, similar uh, verse to what's over in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Here in Colossians 3.23 it says, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the eternal and not unto men. You know, don't do it to try to please men or to avoid criticism even. I mean, there's a, there certainly is a lot to be said for tact and diplomacy and those things. And, and certainly, you know, there's a lot to be said for staying within the lines, within the boundaries that God sets. But, but look at how many people are just cowering in fear, just so timid. They, they I mean, just say in this culture, just saying one wrong thing could get you canceled, could get you blotted out. And so people have to measure every word, every action. Churchill didn't do that. He spoke the truth. He spoke with conviction. He was, in a lot of ways, he spoke, he led the same way that he painted, he took, he took big, bold strokes. This is from that same essay. It says, the first quality that is needed is audacity. There really is no time for the deliberate approach. Two years of drawing lessons, three years of copying woodcuts, five years of plaster casts. These are for the young. <laughs> That's Churchill basically saying, look, I'm in my 40s now. I don't have time to take all these classes on how to paint. I'm just going to start painting. It reminds me of a book, I think, it's, I think his name was Jack uh, Woodford, and, uh, and basically it was a, a fairly long book that probably could have been condensed down to about one page, because his advice 
to budding writers is to just start writing. <laughs> just start writing. Here's how you do it. Just do it and then do it and do it and do it. Practice it. Do it over and again. And this is basically what Churchill did with respect to painting. He just started painting. Again, there's, there's a lot to be said for good instruction. I mean, Churchill even says all the drawing lessons and so on, that's for young people who've got the time to devote three, four, five years to painting, to drawing. But I'm in my middle-aged years. I don't have much time. And so he started painting, and he became pretty good at it because he did it so much. And, and so many things in his life, his remarkable life, the man of the 20th century for sure, he was self-taught. He didn't get much out of school, but he taught himself. He was a voracious reader and studier. He didn't like the school. He didn't take exams very well. But boy, when he got into it, history in particular, he, he delved into it. All, he was all in. The same essay here, it says, oh, actually, this is not that essay. This is The Churchill Factor, written by Boris Johnson. It says here, people feel drawn to Churchill's works, not because they are polished masterpieces, but precisely because they are not. He was willing to try it out, to court ridicule, to make mistakes, but the crucial point is that he, at he, is, he is at least willing to throw himself into it and to run that risk. See, he didn't care what the critics thought. He wasn't concerned about what the critics might say. He was just a man of action. Action this day, that was one of his mottos. <laughs> what, what, what sort of action do we need to take today? Hebrews 10 and verse 38 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. God's not pleased when we draw back. The just live by faith. The just go forward. The just follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. Verse 39 says, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We don't draw back. Paul says, look, we're not like those that, you know, hesitate or, or are timid or fall back or draw back. We go forward. We step forward. Churchill had that attitude and mindset, even, even when it came to a simple hobby, a hobby that in the grand scheme of things wasn't that important, but you can see how it, I mean, you look at some of Churchill's paintings and they're all very, very colorful. He didn't like brown. He, he loved bright pastel colors and he loved painting landscapes. He loved God's creation. That's what he liked to paint. And you can, you can see in, in his paintings that he had a joyous, uplifted spirit. This is from, again, this, uh, this essay, Painting as a Pastime. He says, I consider myself very lucky that late in life I have been able to develop this new taste and pastime. Painting came to my rescue in a most trying time, and I shall venture in the pages that follow to express the gratitude I feel. He says, happy are the painters, for they shall not be lonely. Light and color, peace and hope, will keep them company to the end, or almost to the end, 
of the day. See, when the pressures mount, and Churchill really believed this, when the stress was piling high, that really what you need is a diversion, a, a, a productive diversion, a, a hobby that's actually edifying and uplifting. You just need a, a different, something different to do for a time. The problem, of course, with today is that people, when they, when they are under a tremendous amount of stress or pressure, a lot of times they resort to escapism and, and just immerse themselves into, you know, media or something like that. And all that does is, is make you procrastinate. We all need a break. We all need a diversion from time to time. But look at how this man... Look at how this man spent his time. He, uh, there's the famous, I forget the exact quote, but he talked about, I think he wrote to his wife, and he said, yeah, I laid 1,600 bricks today, and I wrote 2,000 words. <laughs> so this was a man of action, physical, mental. He was pushing himself, whether he was at the typewriter writing or dictating to an assistant or out behind the house at Chartwell laying a, a brick wall. Making a brick wall. Philippians 4 and verse 8, I went through some of these examples to, uh, with the students the other day, as I often do before we head off to our camp out, just to encourage them to get outside and to appreciate God's creation, to appreciate you know, the slower pace and maybe to appreciate poetry, painting, whatever it is, things that maybe you don't have as much time to do when you're in the midst of a full-time college schedule, or at the very least, just meditating and thinking on God's plan and purpose and, and maybe filling up your journal during a few days out with God's creation, out underneath all the stars. It says here in Philippians 4 and verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, it says, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. It says, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. We need to think on these things. This world's just filled with so much negativity. So many people who are just out there to criticize and to ridicule. Think on these things. Meditate on these things. This is uh, from King David, Psalm 63, verse 5. It says, My soul shall be satisfied as with uh, morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the night watches. There's David thinking about God, his purpose, his plan, even in the middle of the night, making the most of his nighttime. This is from the, the Painting as a Pastime essay. Churchill said, Painting is complete as a distraction. I know of nothing which, without exhausting the body, more entirely absorbs the mind. Whatever the worries of the hour or the threats of the future, once the picture has, been, has begun to flow along, there is no room for them in the mental screen. So he would be out there painting these these landscapes, these seascapes, that's what he preferred. Duncan Sandys, Churchill's great-grandson, 
wrote, his approach was very simple. Go outside and paint what you see. Just go outside and paint what you're looking at. That was his approach. That's how he learned to paint. The essay says, I do not presume to explain how to paint, but only how to get enjoyment. Do not turn the superior eye of critical passivity upon these efforts. Buy a paint box and have a try. <laughs> There's his advice to the amateur painter. Just get a paint box and start doing it. It's the same advice the, the Woodford guy gave to budding writers as well. The essay says, change is the master key. A man can wear out a particular part of his mind by continually using it and tiring it, just in the same way he can wear out the elbows of his coat. It says, the tired parts of the mind can be rested and strengthened, not merely by rest, but by using other parts. It says, it's not enough merely to switch off the lights which play upon the main and ordinary field of interest. It says, a new field of interest must be illuminated. See, so you look at this man's life. It's, it's amazing to think about how much he accomplished, how many words he produced over the course of his life. Just a prolific writer, speaker. He obviously saved the West from uh, Nazi tyranny there in the 1940s. And then he produced all these paintings uh, as well. Just amazing. This is a, a quote from, well, I can probably leave off with that and conclude. See, we've got about four minutes, so maybe I can conclude with a few emails since we haven't gotten into that uh, in quite some time. This one here says, thank you for explaining Ephesians 6. It was just terrific. One of my favorite Bible passages. That was our Bible study segment, I believe yesterday or maybe the day before. Another one here writes, just to say, my sister and I really appreciate you and your good, hard, vital work. It says you make a difference and you're needed big time in our lives and uh, in the lives of many others too. Best wishes and please don't stop. It says the daily talk uh, is inspiring, enlightening, and deeply moving. This one here says, uh, well, it refers to a report. I think this might be over at the Gateway Pundit. But it says, uh, Tony Fauci increased personal wealth from $7.6 million to $12.6 million during the pandemic. That's a 65% increase, in case you're doing the math. These people that benefited financially from the pandemic, from the vaccine, as I said yesterday, Moderna kicking in all of those millions, hundreds of millions, to Fauci's companies. Another one here says, in episode 437, titled The Walls Are Closing In, a clip is played of Emily Kors, or Kors looking maniacally deranged in wanting to take down President Trump. It says, looking at such people, a paragraph of Mr. Armstrong's greatest book keeps coming to mind. And then they quote uh, Mystery of the Ages. Mr. Armstrong says, I have had a number of personal experiences with demons through a few demon-possessed people. I have cast out demons through the name of Christ and power of the Holy Spirit. Some demons are silly, like spoiled children. Some are crafty, sharp, shrewd, subtle. Some are belligerent. Some are sassy. Some are sullen and morose. But all are perverted 
warped and twisted. It says here, Mr. Armstrong was right in so many ways and surely enlightened by God himself. Another one here says, thank you for the wonderful show. I was only thinking the other day it would be great to have the TD on Rumble, as I loved it when it was on YouTube. Well, you can, uh, you can be sure it is on Rumble. It has been now for a few weeks, and uh, it's nice to see the very tiny beginning, the mustard seed beginning, beginning to show some fruit. We're getting more people watching on Rumble. It says here, it's 4.20 a.m. here in Adelaide, Australia, and I'm watching the, TV, the TD on my TV in full screen thanks to the Rumble app on Apple TV. It's so easy now. It says, <laughs> it says after War Room finishes, that's a Steve Bannon show, after War Room finishes on Rumble, I go straight to the TD to watch God's perspective on the news. I just watched on the War Room. It's only a matter of time before thousands catch on and start watching live with me. It says also, after watching PCG shows, for 30 years, I'm so proud of your improved production values. I just noticed something and thought, wow, the TD is a world-class uh, production. It says here, uh, Stephen Flurry just went through all the media articles criticizing Woody Harrelson on SNL. He could have just read the article headlines with no corresponding visuals, but you showed us a picture of each article headline as you mentioned it. This requires more work, but this attention to detail makes... Uh, the show, a true pleasure to watch. Thank you so much, and please know all the hard work of your production team does not go unnoticed. One last one here says, we love what you provide to us through the Trumpet Daily. We know that it's a lot of work, but you're helping, you're helping us watch world events. Thank you for all the hard work and dedication to you and all your staff. So that's all that we have time for on today's show. If you'd like to email the program, you can reach us at tdatthetrumpet.com. You are listening to or you are watching Stephen Flurry, and this is The Trumpet Daily. Thank you for joining us on today's show, and we'll see you next time.